0: Hey folks, back in December of 2019, I took a trip out to California and recorded a series of podcasts out there. You might remember that series. This is the final installment of that series. I know I waited an awfully long time to put this one out, but it will have been worth the wait, as you'll see, because my two guests are brilliant and the topic is fascinating. It's about China's legal system and artificial intelligence and a very strange sort of intersection of these two things. So that California series, if you'll recall, was funded by the Serica Initiative, which is China's sister nonprofit organization. You can look at our website to find out more about what the Serica Initiative is doing. Meanwhile, enjoy the show. <music> Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup from the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SubChina access and you get all that and much more with stories and everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, From the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal detainment of hundreds of thousands or by some estimates over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region, we are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Gua and today I am at my beloved alma mater, the University of California, Berkeley, uh, for the last in this series of podcasts from the Golden State. I have had a terrific time here in California, and as you can imagine, it's been really stimulating to talk to so many people on so many disparate topics in such a short time. It's a good thing too, to stress test your own love of your work. Uh, do it on a maximum setting for you know a good solid week and see if you still love it. I passed, I think, with flying colors. So I have to say, it'd be pretty hard for me to even design a job that I would like to do better than this one. Anyway, I hope you listeners have enjoyed listening to this as much as I have enjoyed you know, getting in these conversations. So. This time, in 2014, the Supreme People's Court of the People's Republic of China enacted a policy that called on all courts in China to make judicial decisions available to the public. To date, literally millions, tens of millions, I think by latest count, something like 80 million court decisions have been uploaded and are now accessible. Despite the fact that the database is far far from complete and uh, that there are redactions in some of the material that's been uploaded, this is nevertheless clearly something of tremendous consequence and utility for many stakeholders in the Chinese legal system. Not to mention for legal scholars who can now deploy all sorts of textual analysis aided no doubt by machine learning to this trove of data. And I think it's going to in coming years just you know generate all sorts of groundbreaking research uh, that's going to tell us a whole lot about the Chinese legal system that we didn't know. Given how much China has in recent years closed off to a lot of fields of research, especially in topics that touch on politics, the way that law and especially administrative law does, Uh, this opens up real opportunities To study the Chinese legal system. So, for this final installment on the California trip, I wanted to talk to some of the scholars who are surveying this potential gold field. Uh, A group of four of them: Rachel Stern, Benjamin Liebman, Margaret Roberts, Molly, and Alice Z. Wong, are doing some really exciting work on this. And those of you who heard last week's show with one of those scholars, with Molly Roberts, got a preview of what today's topic of conversation has in store. So. Today we are talking to Rachel Stern, who many of you may remember from the podcast that Jeremy and I taped almost, I guess it was like three years ago, huh, Rachel?
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. It doesn't feel like that long, does it? <laughs> no.
0: Uh, anyway, Rachel, as you will remember, is a professor at both Bolt Hall, which is College Law School, and in the Department of Political Science. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: It's my pleasure. Welcome. Welcome back.
0: Thanks. All right. Anyway, we are joined by Benjamin Liebman, also, who is our returning guest to the program. Listeners doubtless remember the show we did with him in New York about tort law in China and traffic, which was just an amazing, a lot of fun, um, very cool show. Go back and check it out. Ben teaches at Columbia, uh, but joins us today from London. From, wait, where are you? are not in London. You're in...
2: I'm in, I'm in Leytonstone.
0: Ah, wow, Leytonstone. So anyway, uh, Ben, welcome back to the show And uh, thanks for joining us Thank you, uh, it's great to be back uh, So Rachel, Ben, what was your reaction first When you became aware that this, this project was in the works uh, Were you skeptical that it was ever going to amount out too much Or did you start like instantly licking your chops Thinking about the, the research possibilities of this Or did you start maybe dreaming about the transformational potential That making all of this available would, would, would represent Rachel, you go first
1: Well, when we found out that these court decisions were going to be available, I actually was thinking about it as you came in today, Kaiser, because Ben and I had a conversation right in this room. Wow. He came out to give a talk. And I think for both of us, we were—we had written from Chinese court decisions before. We'd written articles based on smaller samples of Chinese court decisions. So to find out that this scale of Chinese court decisions was going to be available, I think was very exciting for us both. Uh sort of like, I was trying to think of the right analogy. It's like finding an archive that you didn't know existed or like <laughs> yeah. a discovery of a documents that you thought had long been lost. So we shared that sense of excitement and also the sense that someone was going to look at these documents, that this was going to transform our field with us or without us. Right. So right. he was out here for a talk. I mean, this conversation, we thought, This is exciting, but it's also very challenging, too. It was clear from the start that the scale, I just looked this morning, there's 84 million documents online now. Um, So Ben and I, neither of us had a background in computational text analytics. This was going to be a big challenge. So when he was out here, we decided to team up and we brought Molly onto the team to help with both the political science side and also the computational text analysis side.
0: Ben, is that how you remember things?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember the same conversation over coffee in Berkeley. Uh, I, you know, the the roots of this policy go back earlier than 2014. So, just about 2009, 2010, uh, Hun, the Hunan High Court passed a rule requiring courts in Hunan to put cases online, and I had started doing some work on Hunan 2011, 2012, but really just looking at one or two courts. Uh, so we were conscious of these cases becoming available, at least in some provinces. And then when they became available nationwide, we realized we really needed to do more to try and you know, look at a much larger number of cases and to start downloading them as well, which is which is also always a challenge. And as Rachel says, that's why uh, we brought on Molly. I was very fortunate at the time to have as a student, Alice, uh, who came into law school incredibly teched up and, uh, you know, very sophisticated in her ability to both uh, download the data and also analyze it. Yeah, thank God
0: for these youngsters huh, with their, their data science backgrounds. It's amazing. Um, is there something comparable in the U.S.? I think a lot of people would read about this and immediately think, isn't this sort of like China's LexisNexis? Um, I'm not sure. Is that is it the same thing, Rachel? Are they comparable?
1: No, they're not comparable. Um, I'll kick this over to Ben in a second for him to add in. But this is a centralized repository of cases. There's just one. It's set up by the SPC. It's called Wen Shuang. um, And it has cases from all across the nation. And the U.S. court system is radically decentralized. So it would be state by state in terms of judicial disclosure here with LexisNexis aggregating. But not even all judicial decisions are published in the U.S. So LexisNexis, which traditionally we think of as the the complete repository, has always been partial. Hmm. And the fact that we think of it as as complete is kind of a, a myth or a fiction that we just forget about all the stuff that's not included in it.
2: Yeah, so I'll just add on to that with a couple additional points. One, this is transparency at the end of the process, right? So in the U.S., you have uh, court documents sort of in real time in most jurisdictions, certainly in the federal system and many states being made public. So, you know, in New York, you would have not just the final decision, but court filings as they are filed generally being made public. The same is true at the federal level. The Chinese system, what we're seeing is the final decision right after a case has gone final. Uh, and so it's a, a bit more of a stylized document as well. The second point I'd make is that the style in which decisions are written in China is very standardized. So every case gets a final decision, which generally not always will record the facts and the arguments in a you know three to five page form but they're very standardized. So from the perspective of scholars looking at this data, that's a benefit, right? It's all the same. In the U.S., you, know, you might have a case be decided by jury in which you just get a one-line you know, jury verdict. You don't get a, a single document that summarizes everything that's gone on. Now, it's also important to remember, though, that in the Chinese system, what you're getting is a final decision of what the court wants to record as what happened, right? That may not be exactly what happened. So we're getting a, a sort of summary of what happened through the eyes, or I guess through the, the words of the court, which may or may not uh, totally align with what goes on. And so one of the criticisms of over-reliance on this data is that it only tells us part of what's going on. There's actually a lot you can see, but there's a lot you can't see as well.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into exactly what it is that you can and can't see. Um, but first, just just so that we understand what is included in this, are we talking about all courts at all levels, or is it this just intermediate courts or where where are we at Rachel it
1: should be everyone
0: well, wow, every court yeah, all the way up and down wow that's amazing. What about other countries ben what what's the state of of this in other countries? Is China sort of at the vanguard in in, in that or maybe at least in the vanguard in terms of authoritarian countries? Yeah,
2: it's a, it's a great question. So as far as we can tell, there is no other authoritarian country that's doing anything like this uh, at all. And so, And that's what's striking about it. You just don't expect an authoritarian legal system to suddenly embrace this level of transparency about its final work product. But actually, as we got into this project, we found that it's actually not so easy to Find other civil law jurisdictions that are doing. Uh, it's not so easy to find other civil law jurisdictions that are releasing this volume of, of cases. So it's certainly unusual amidst other amongst. Sorry, China is certainly unusual among authoritarian legal systems, but it also appears to be unusual amongst civil law systems.
0: Right, and and China being a civil law and not a common law country, I, I wonder. Is having all these decisions accessible somehow less valuable in a sense? Because, you know, in civil law countries like China, precedent doesn't count for as much as in a common law country, if I'm understanding that correctly. And and uh, so is it as valuable as it might be in a common law country?
1: I think uh, it depends what you want to use the decisions for. Mm. Like they're not going to have the same precedential value that they would in a in a common law system. Um, But if you're a researcher like me or like Ben, and you've suddenly got 84 million documents to understand everyday law, that's pretty exciting. Um, And others, uh, Ben's written about this, Susan Finder has written about it as well. But there's a kind of soft precedent that is a de facto part of the Chinese legal system, where even though these cases don't have, they're not technically precedents, of course, lawyers are looking at them judges are looking at them especially when they get to parts of the law that are like maybe a little more obscure that they haven't handled before they'll get online and and do research inside these databases so it's the in terms of precedent and sort of an intermediate gray zone where they actually where they do have some kind of guiding value in terms of influencing the decisions that come after them
0: and staying with you for now rachel What was the putative motive then in making these court decisions available? They didn't do it for researchers outside of
1: No, no, they didn't. Um, I I think the the dominant narrative is, is one of the SPC, the Supreme People's Court, wanting to know more themselves about what was going on inside the court system, and in particular to be able to monitor the monitor judges. So you can think of it as a kind of pushback against transparency, being the wonderful disinfectant for corruption.
0: Yeah. So there was that motive in it. Yeah. Do you think that was the totality of it, though?
1: I, th- I think it's. I think it's. It's. It's a hard story to talk about in a way because I think it's still playing out. It's not. There's different bureaucratic. Interests in China that are pushing in different directions. This is part of an ongoing discussion inside China about yes, we want transparency. We embrace this as part of what it means to be a modern legal system. But on the other hand, we want to control the transparency. And we, there's, also, there's also pushback in wanting to maintain control over state data and how state data is used. So you see both. I mean, that tension is part of how this story is unfolding, um, and it's continue, continuing to play out.
0: Ben, maybe it's because i'm steeped in so much this reading on you know china's developing techno authoritarian state and its obsession with ai but i can't help but suspect that maybe there's a longer term motive here that they you know they, they believe in automating everything using gigantic data sets so is there maybe that thinking
2: <laughs> i mean maybe we'll get to this a little bit later i think there are now is a lot of discussion about using ai in the courts and curbing human discretion but just to add on to what Rachel said, uh, in addition to curbing wrongdoing and, and the roots of this policy, that really does grow out of the late 2000s and the perception that there were a lot of problems in the courts. Uh, in addition to this, I think there's a there's a real appeal within the Chinese system to standardization. There's a sense that if two courts in different places issue a decision that issue decisions that are inconsistent, that that's a problem. And so part of the appeal of of making cases online and also in Increasingly, the use of AI algorithms to check what the courts are doing is that it will bring uh, standardization. It'll solve the problem of Tongan butongpan, right? That this same case, different outcomes. And I think that that inconsistency is seen as more of a problem in China, certainly than in the U.S., and maybe than in some other civil systems. I'll just add one other thing, which is for the courts, which have historically been weak actors in this system this is an area where they could lead. And so when Zhou Chong comes, comes into, you know, his position as head of the Supreme People's Court, I guess six, seven years ago now, it's an opportunity for the courts to say to everyone, look, the courts are out ahead in terms of our embrace of big data, uh, artificial intelligence, the, the term they use in the courts is smart courts. And it's a way that they can start to build their own legitimacy, I think within the party state system by saying, you know, we're leading the way, not just within China, but actually in the world as well.
1: I just wanted to jump in on the, on the, I call it deciding like cases alike, the, the tong and tong pan and that, that kind of narrative. It's such a, a recent, such a point of contrast between China and the U.S. Hmm. Like, I think in the U.S., we don't care about consistency in judicial decisions at all. We tolerate circuit splits. We tolerate different, I mean, in a way, we, we embrace it. We think it's okay if justice is different in North Carolina, where you live, than it is in Berkeley, where I live. Mm. We're totally cool with that. Um, and but it's a value, and it's a value that's really stressed in China. And uh, coming from pol- political science, it's intimately linked with centralization of power. Right. right when right. I hear when I hear deciding like cases alike, I hear centralization of power, and of course that resonates with with Xi Jinping's time and power
0: yeah for sure for sure uh are you aware rachel of any actual deployment of of these automated systems in china in or in in making decisions yet are they beginning to do that already
1: they're trying for sure uh there's a number of different localities so the way this is unfolding is it's a it's a decentralized experimentation Mm -hmm. where different Courts sign contracts with technology companies to produce specific products, and often those products are around what they call assisted judging. Um, So something like if you get arrested on a DUI, the judge can go in and fill out the facts of the case. Uh So it would be like, what was your blood alcohol level? What was the level of damages? What did you cause? Did you kill anyone? Level of property damages. And then the software will analyze this database of past decisions and spit out in cases like yours, the recommend the, the average sentence was four months so that's not quite automated decision making no, but, but you can imagine in a system that has a re- that struggles with very high caseloads most judges are going to say, okay four months that was the average in the past great let's do that moving forward so it's a huge step toward automated decision making and there are reports of those software systems like that um, being rolled out in a number of different areas the, the one of the High-profile ones is in Shanghai, for example. Tell us about that. um, It's called Project Two Hundred Six. It was rolling out this kind of assisted decision making in criminal cases to start with. What's What's not clear, and this is where you know we're trying in our work to separate, even though it's hard, the AI hype from the reality. Is it's not totally clear. Whether judges are using this software, mm. as it's what, rolled what's out. the
0: rough ratio, if you guys know, of civil to to uh, criminal
2: cases that are on this database?
1: Ben, do you know off the top of your head? Uh,
2: off the top of my head, no. But I mean, the overwhelming majority of cases in this system are civil, right? You're just short of about a million criminal cases a year, and and you know, over ten million, I think, civil cases now a year. So. Uh, the, the disclosure rates online of civil cases are lower than criminal cases generally. Uh, and that's because mediated civil cases are not put online. And a lot of, you know, a lot of cases are mediated. So if it's a mediated case, it doesn't show up online primarily, but, um, and it's also because there's some areas like family law divorce where their rules say that courts don't have to put it online because they touch on, you know, personal information, uh, And so parties actually, so as a rule, divorce cases don't go online. That's a big chunk of civil cases as well. So as a percentage matter, you're going to probably, especially basic level cases, you're going to see a higher percentage of criminal cases online than civil. But as a total number, civil is obviously much bigger.
0: So let's talk about the data set that you actually used um, in in your preliminary research here uh, and, and what you found. Ben... You seem to have some obsession with the, the my my ancestral province Henan. I remember the last time we talked to you about looking at, at a, a batches of court cases in in torts. There was also a big example drawn from a, a, a set of courts in Henan province. What what is up with you in Henan? I mean, I love the place, but I've I've got my reasons.
2: <laughs> yeah, all I can all I can really say is Zhong. Uh, <laughs> it's my my one word of Hunanhua, but um. Uh, it's all purpose. And, and my though. friends in Hunan would say Hunan is always in the vanguard, uh, if, always. So uh, Henan is, is interesting because although I think a lot of the time we outside of, of China think of the Shanghai courts or the Beijing courts as being the most advanced or the highest quality courts, if you go back to the late 2000s, there were a lot of interesting innovations going on in Henan. And. Hunan was the first province to have a rule saying all cases should be online. So that's why I started paying attention to Hunan. I thought that was pretty amazing that Hunan was ahead of you know more developed areas along the coast, uh, at least back then. And, and that's why I started focusing on Hunan.
0: It makes me proud. Uh, Rachel, I think our listeners would be really curious to figure out, or to know how it is that you were able to determine what was missing from the database. I mean, Ben just flicked at some of this, so... In, in divorce cases, for example, stuff that's quite intimate and personal and family law. I understand that. I understand how uh, you know there would be uh, all the mediated cases would not make it because there's no judgment in them. But how do you figure out what else is missing?
1: It's a hard problem. Yeah. Let me. I'll just be honest about that and start there. Um, but of course, for for anyone who's looking to do research, you need to know what's not there because. Before you start running numbers on the data set, um, so what we, we do, and what other there's also, I should acknowledge that there's a number of really excellent papers written by Chinese researchers that also look at this problem, mm. particularly by by he Hai Bo and Yu Xiaohong at Tsinghua. And what they've done and what we've done is the same, which is we're comparing what we're finding online to official statistics. Ah, uh, right. In one way, in one way or another.
0: So, are there large categories of cases that seem then to be missing? Uh, from the 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 database
1: well there's the 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 known the known missing cases and the unknown missing (laughs) cases so there's carve-outs they at the SPC when they told the courts what they needed to release they created big carve-outs like you're not supposed to put divorce cases online you're not supposed to put um, criminal decisions of juveniles online mediation also not supposed to be online um, and then it's clear that there's also, they created a category where courts could just decide any decision was inappropriate for posting online.
0: This would touch on politically sensitive topics, presumably. Presumably. State Presumably. Secrets. Maybe touch people who are too close to power.
1: Yeah, something like that. So any lawyer that you talk to in China will be able to say, oh yeah, I have an example of a case that I handled that you know, never showed up in the online database. So there, so that we have anecdotal evidence that there that there is at least some level of administrative censorship.
0: So how then, um, Ben? Maybe you can tackle this one without going into too much of the methodological minutia. How do you handle missing data?
2: So I think the first thing you have to do is just be honest about the limitations of your data. And what we've advocated in our work is really a mixed methods approach where you know we're we're cautious about the quantitative claims uh, we make about our data uh we bound them based on what we know about the the missingness uh, what we call the missingness in our data, and we combine that also with qualitative on the ground uh work so we try and sort of draw a picture of what we think is going on. It's really coming at this from a number of different angles where we will try and combine qualitative work with some quantitative analysis with a lot of close reading of cases and so in our paper so far, we've deployed a methodology called topic modeling, which is something that Molly is really much more of an expert on than I am. And uh, but what this involves is basically having the computer read you know tens of thousands of cases and find patterns in cases based on the language. Uh, and then we're doing we have we're doing a lot of close reading of cases for for each of our projects. We're often reading anywhere from three to ten thousand cases as well. And it's through that close reading I think that we've just That we've made our biggest discoveries. It's through through that close reading of cases that we've started to notice trends we weren't previously aware of.
0: So you guys are performing better than the AI. So that's great. Yeah, (laughs) humans
1: are still smarter than computers. Yeah, that's our conclusion.
0: That's a good conclusion. It's a comforting one. Um, So let's get into that. Um, Some of the the stuff that you did find. You looked at first of all at a lot of these administrative cases. Uh, There is a conventional wisdom that uh, I suppose has prevailed for some time, and it's a pretty optimistic one. Uh, that says that the the number, the increase in the number of administrative cases that courts are handling is indicative of the sort of new willingness of people to, to take on government institute, uh, institutions or agencies, right? And presumably that's good from our own sort of American normative perspective. That seems like a very good thing, of course. But you guys challenge that conventional wisdom in the administrative law cases. Uh, what instead do you find? And tell us about how you sleuth this out.
2: Sure, so so through this sort of close reading of of cases, we discovered something that we weren't previously aware of, and I think others had not generally observed, which is that a very large percentage of administrative litigation cases, so these are administrative litigation are individuals or companies suing the state, you know,' generally suing local governments or local government agencies. and we found that a very large percentage of these cases we're not actually complaining about government inaction; they really reflected underlying disputes with third parties. So somebody was having a fight with their neighbor, and somehow they turned this into a dispute with the state. They were actually seeking the state's help in resolving what we might think of as a private law third-party dispute. As uh, about forty percent of the cases that we looked at, through different methodologies, turn out to be. These third party disputes where individuals really their underlying grievance is really not with the state it's with someone in private uh, in a private dispute in private litigation or in a in a private dispute that hasn't made it into litigation except through administrative litigation so it's not really challenging the state or as the as as some of the prior literature described throwing an egg you know against a stone the difficulty of bringing a lawsuit against the state it's actually going to court and asking the state to get involved and help solve a problem.
0: So how are, you, how are we sure that this is not just another case of Hunan in the vanguard using this innovative approach to, you know, enlist the state on their side? <laughs> right. Yeah,
2: I think that, I mean, so one way is that we've also talked to judges elsewhere, uh, lawyers elsewhere who have confirmed this, um, and have sort of, sort of said that we shouldn't use the total number of administrative cases as a measure of whether people are you know, dare to sue the state, but rather need to look actually at what the underlying disputes are. I should add the other thing that turns up in these cases is there's a lot of what we might think of as sort of minutia. There's a lot of routine stuff you'd see in any legal system, right? People going to court for retirement benefits. Uh, there's a lot of procedural cases as well. So to sort of say that every time someone sues the state in China is a, represents an attempt by you know, to challenge authoritarian rule, I think, is is a mistake. That's what we're really pushing back against, and we're sort of suggesting that there's a lot of routine stuff here, and there's a lot of seeking the state's help in these cases.
0: Yeah, you guys push back against not just that, that piece of the narrative, but against the more specifically techno-utopia, or the the more specifically sort of techno-dystopian or techno-authoritarian narrative uh, that we've seen emerging in recent years as well, Uh, even though I think somebody who's just looking at this at first blush might think that this Conforms very much with that techno-authoritarian narrative, you know, with these automated decisions and whatnot. Rachel, can you talk me through that? How's that the paper that you you sent me? Uh, one of a, a fascinating paper. It, I got the two conflated. I read the I read them, you know, a few weeks ago, and uh, amidst a lot of preparation. So forgive me for not knowing the details. Maybe you can walk me through what that that paper was.
1: Yeah, I think the takeaway from that paper is that we think about China as a. Maybe this is the prevailing media narrative. I don't want to speak for all of us, but there is a prevailing media narrative of China as an emerging technotatorship. This is the 1984 framing of China that comes up so often on your show. It's a whole other conversation why we're so invested in that narrative. But if you look at the courts and how they're trying to use AI, um, and mostly in in a way this paper takes the perspective of the courts themselves and says, hey, this has been really hard to implement. You know, just because the SPC said hey, everybody put your cases online. There were a lot of local courts that didn't comply. That was an unfunded mandate that was hard to implement across the the breadth of China. And the whole thing is radically decentralized. Like when we think of the techno-totalitarian narrative, it's about centralized control. Whereas the reality is that these are local courts contracting for piecemeal software systems that one day would require tremendous effort to integrate into a national system, should anyone ever decide that that's, that that's, that that's what they want to do. So in this area, as in so many areas in Chinese politics, you have this story of decentralized experimentation, where all the incentives are to proclaim success and move on quickly, right. <laughs> rather than to build something national that's, that's, that, that's really deep. Um, and the aspiration is there and the aspirations are really interesting, but there's this big gap between the aspirations and also the demos that the software companies show to the courts and to outside observers. There's a big gap between, between the rhetoric and the, and the reality. So we're, we're trying to add some nuance to this discussion of how, how the Chinese state is using technology to govern and some of the challenges that it might present along the way.
0: So, I mean, obviously, as an unfunded mandate, there is the budget problem. These right. guys are having to go out and buy off-the-shelf software, contract with these vendors to do this. And then there's the manpower issue as well, presumably. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of, of, of time to get millions of court cases up. I mean, a lot of this stuff is in on paper, right? It's not even digitized to begin with.
1: There has been a massive digitization project mm-hmm. that has gone kind of, when when Ben mentioned smart courts as the umbrella slogan of the judiciary part of that has been kind of low tech what i think of as low tech stuff like digitization so it's not clear how much manpower it takes uh to get this stuff online it could be as simple as a click mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. in a in a court system that's relatively digitized um and in other places it may be a question of, it, may, it may take more manpower but they, but there's still manpower involved there's, you're supposed to redact personal information and other kinds of things so it's it's no small ask
0: yeah, and I guess the redactions have been imperfect, if I recall from your paper as yeah. well. There's, yeah. um, ben, is there evidence of resistance to this policy? Do you see this coming from anyone within um, you know, the higher echelons of the party or within the court system? Uh, is there anyone saying, you know, not such a good idea, so let's slow
2: down? Yes, uh, and I'll respond in sort of two ways. One is, as Rachel mentioned, they're just – a lot of cases where people push back and I think more than political censorship, what you see are just powerful corporate interests who don't want their information online and will make a phone call to somebody to get their data off so there's definitely pushback from from some powerful interests that just don't want to see this data out there sometimes but I think more generally, I think within the courts there's at least there are at least some voices in the courts who are just nervous who who think that this Risks exposing problems in the courts, and that over time, the costs of this, in terms of, of public exposure of court wrongdoing, may exceed the benefits. And I think that's one reason that we've seen the courts actually only make public final decisions. Right. So, uh, if a case is appealed, uh, they the first instance decision does not get made public until there's a final decision from the appellate court. So. There's this big focus on only the final decision being public because there's concerns about popular misperception or misunderstanding of what the courts are doing in some cases. But it's also why I think very recently we've seen the Supreme People's Court starting to make it harder to download cases. So it used to be pretty easy to download cases. Suddenly it's very hard to do it. There's a lot of blocking technology up there. Now the court gives the reason for this as being that so many people are downloading this data that ordinary users can't use it. But I think most observers, especially the companies that are trying to download this data within China, think that this reflects sort of more deep uncertainty about whether it's such a good thing to let you know both academics, but I think more importantly, companies download all this data. So you know today, if you go to do a search on the Supreme People's Court website you'll be limited, I think, to about a thousand results. You won't be, you know, so if you do a search for you know, criminal cases in Hunan, you can only see the first thousand results. You can't see beyond that. And it's also become very, very difficult to engage in mass downloads because the Supreme People's Court, I think, wants to control what's done with this data more than it did right when this policy was starting.
0: So, Rachel, it wouldn't surprise me at all that—it uh, that would surprise me, actually, if there weren't companies trying to download this data and, and spin it into something valuable. Uh, in fact, I think as we, we were talking earlier, not only are there private companies that are trying to capitalize on this, but the courts themselves are, are making corporations that are using this. It doesn't come immediately to mind, though, what you would do with it. What, what is valuable about this? What, what could you do with databases of millions of court decisions?
1: Yeah, what's developed is a marketplace for legal information. Mm. And I think the companies themselves are trying to figure out exactly what you just asked, which is how do we make money off of this? (laughs) And I think it's not totally clear. Like a lot of startup scenes that are fueled by venture capital, it's like how do we pivot and make money? Um, So we have a legal analytics industry in the U.S. as well. And the vision around it is that aggregating these millions of cases into accounts of generalized trends might be something that lawyers would pay for or law firms would pay for or that litigants would pay for, you know, so you can venue shop, so you can decide what legal strategy to take. Uh, That is the motivating idea behind the legal analytics industry. And there's some of that in China. In China, you've also got a wing that's of of this that is about selling software to the courts. Right. So there's a government procurement side of this, and companies are very much in that space as well. Um, but those are the two dominant strategies, and it's just been a flourishing of companies. It's it's dozens, maybe maybe in the low hundreds.
0: Ben, are you aware of any other initiatives that are trying to
2: make money from this database? Yeah, so there's both the sort of legal and the illegal, I'll say. I mean, so as Rachel said, litigation consulting is what's thriving now, and You know, as we say in one of our papers, we actually have concerns about this because it it starts to sound like this public data is serving the haves rather than the haves nots. It can make the system less equal. In the U.S., uh, money is is made by the sale of personal information gleaned from court decisions. That is by far the biggest market, and that's why, if you look at the federal system. The largest, you know, the the overwhelming majority of searches, I think, are of of bankruptcy filings. In China, the sale of personal information is heavily restricted. Uh, And so ostensibly, companies are not supposed to be downloading this and selling personal information. And in many cases, uh, that information is redacted. But uh, I think it's pretty safe to assume that there is some sale of personal information going on within China. Um, you certainly hear of banks looking at this data and making loan decisions. Uh, you hear of business partners looking at these this data in terms of making decisions whether to go into business with folks. So I think China has moved cautiously because they're worried about monetizing the sale of personal information. But I think it's also probably starting to happen, at least behind the scenes.
0: Of course, it's it's academic researchers who are going to make less solid use of this data. So let's let's talk about what some of the possibilities are there. Uh, if a graduate student, you, having read your the couple of papers that you've put out already and sort of now aware of this and clearly aware of the potential, were to sit down with you and say, "What are some of the research questions I should be probing? What are some of the things that you think that uh, I might you know f- shape my dissertation around based on this, uh, what sorts of topics would you steer them toward right now?
2: so I think I think that one broad question I think which, is certainly worthy of study, we're starting to do some work on this, is actually to try and better understand how the courts themselves are using technology. Uh, we mentioned AI before, but I think this is absolutely fascinating, where we're starting to see courts all rushing to embrace new forms of technology, partially, I think, because it helps make their workload a little bit uh, less. Courts are overworked in China, so there's this belief that you know if you can uh, deploy AI, maybe you can lessen your workload. Partially, I think though, because it also serves a narrative that you know this is an area where Chinese courts perhaps can lead the world that they can that they can adopt AI in new and innovative ways, uh, and also I think uh because this resonates the the idea of using technology resonates with the extreme distrust of of individual discretion that I think is on the rise in China under Xi Jinping, this idea that you know if we can have have technology replacing humans, then we're going to get better outcomes. So that's one area where I think uh, we're seeing a lot of, of fascinating developments that I think are worth looking at. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that is this is sort of a, an obvious point, but you can look at almost any area of Chinese law now and obtain insights you couldn't get before because you can go online and look at tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of cases. So there are whole areas of Chinese law that really no one's looked at before where we can start to read large volumes of cases and try and better understand what courts are actually doing I think especially in routine, ordinary cases, sort of day-to-day ordinary justice.
1: You compared this at the top of the segment, uh, Kaiser, to a gold field. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the right analogy. It's, I mean, it gets simultaneously tantalizing, but also frustrating, like this feeling that you're panning for gold. Right. So I almost feel like the right advice to give is to come to this data set with your interest or your question.
0: Right, right, right. As
1: opposed to being like, well, you know, and not let it... and. Uh, this data set will have something to say about almost everything because law in, in, intersects politics and social life in such a deep way. And so to bring this legal angle as one angle onto your question, I think is the right way to go.
0: And what about the tools that the, the would-be panner would wish bring? I mean, uh, this isn't something that me, you know, being kind of a data dummy, I would not want to tackle this without, you know, like a, a, a trusty nerd sidekick, like who knows how to do Yeah. Uh, are we... Yeah, I mean presumably you got I mean you guys had Molly who not who that she's a nerd but she knows her way around data. Right?
1: That's true. I mean I think that the data analytics skills and that you kind of need to know some rudimentary python are mm-hmm, being increasingly mm-hmm. taught across the social sciences as graduate courses. So I think it's increasingly common for graduate students to have enough skills. <laughs> oh my god. to, I need to go back to, to back to school to look at this data. Um so I think that in that sense, it opens up a lot of possibilities for for people who want to look at it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's also a lot of reading. So one of the things we found is that, yeah, you do need the tech skills, but what, what, what people call domain knowledge, which is in particularly court procedure, it's actually pretty hard to read these cases unless you have a sense of what courts do as they move through from dispute to decision and what that process looks like. Uh, so it's a it's a question of not forgetting that part of it too, of developing the domain knowledge to be able to read to, to read and understand what you're seeing.
0: Ben, just now you said a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. One was this idea that uh, fairness—you'll get more sort of fair outcomes with the presumably impartiality of an AI system than he would from humans. I feel like that would be almost the opposite of what Americans would conclude now. I mean, we live in this in this time, and I think it, it, it really speaks to a real difference in the way that they relate to to, to technology itself. Um, but the other thing you were talking about was how uh, everyone and their mother in China is sort of obsessed with AI. There are limitations to it, too. I mean, there are obvious possibilities here, but you know, we were just talking about how you know, despite that, you have to be able to read how the real insights that you guys got from were come from the close readings of thousands of these cases, rather than just running them through an algorithm. Uh, what are the limitations uh, to the court's expectations of what AI will be able to generate right now? And what would you, if you were to sit down with people at the SPC and tell them, "Hey, look, you know, I know you're. It's wonderful that you're doing this, but maybe don't don't get ahead of yourselves here." What are the warnings you might? you might offer?
2: So, I mean, one is these algorithms may not be that accurate. Uh, there's, there's sort of two different attempts being made in China to come up with algorithms that will decide cases. One is actually people sitting down in groups and trying to you know, do a decision tree uh, that actually decides the whole range of cases, at least in routine criminal cases, and the other is you know, training the algorithm based on machine learning based on prior cases. And of course, in the second one, you're potentially you know, reflecting problems in the existing cases, right? So you're not you're, you're training the data based on cases that are include the problems you're trying to solve. In the second one, humans are valuable, and there are lots of different uh, views sometimes of how cases should be decided. So, the algorithm's only going to be as accurate as the people who are writing it. In some cases, they're also you know outsourcing some of this to tech companies to programmers who may not have that much legal knowledge. so I think there's a problem in in that they think that every case sort of has a clear right answer, and I just think that's not actually the reality of how law functions anywhere um in, not in the United States and not in china that there there may be multiple different answers. Um, another point is that you know, what the court say they really need help with are complex cases, not simple cases, that simple cases don't take that much time. And of course, the algorithms, not surprisingly, are gonna be better at deciding the simple cases than they are at the, the, at the more complex cases. So I guess my caution would be, it may not work as well as you think, and it may also you know, bring in a whole range of new types of problems. As, as well as you start to try and deploy this. Just to add, I mean, there's a lot of pushback against this uh, from judges in China as well, both online and writing and in person. I mean, courts sort of think, you know, judges aren't so happy with all of this. They don't think they should be so easily replaced. You know, we often say that, you know, one of the explanations for why China's moving so, so much more quickly is there's much less emphasis on procedural fairness. There's, you know, no tradition of saying you have your day in court. And so maybe it's easier to leapfrog to an AI style of decision-making, but it's been interesting to watch as judges within China also push back saying, hey, wait a second, you can't get rid of us so easily, and there's some things we we have to do. Then if I can just add one other point, I think the other really fascinating point uh, that I think they haven't really begun to confront is that as the rules of the system operate in China, judges in China are supposed to take consideration of a wide range of non-legal factors in making decisions, right? So if a If a judge deciding a traffic accident case in China sees there as being a potential for instability, for petitioning following from that case, the judge deciding that case may ignore the law and in doing so may be doing exactly what she is supposed to do in this case. Judges are supposed to consider social stability. They're supposed to consider a wide range of factors. And of course, the algorithms might not be so good at capturing that other side of judging in China. So... In a sense, this, this shift towards you know algorithm algorithmic decision-making may actually call on judges or call on courts to abandon some of the sort of social balancing that's gone into other prior decisions. And I think they haven't really begun to confront what that means. Now, that may be a good thing for from some people's perspective, but it's in real tension with the roles judges have always played in China.
0: It's not a surprise at all to me that that should be something you would be sensitive to because in both the earlier conversations I had with you, Ben, and with Rachel, that was a key theme, how that element of sort of consideration of social impact of decisions was a major factor. And um, that's, that's fascinating. It comes sort of full circle like that. Well, what about you, Rachel? I mean, the same question. What you would uh, you know, caution if you have got anything to add?
1: Well, the term AI is so hot. Everywhere. I mean, that's worldwide, but especially in China. It's an umbrella term that's applied to anything that's vaguely technological that the courts are doing. So, But on the most ambitious end of that, what they're trying to do is to understand and predict social trends, to get out ahead, to become a, a learning state that knows what's happening. Um, and I think actually I don't... Th- I don't think I'm telling. I would be telling the SPC anything they don't already know. And that's but a laudable that's, thing. Think, that, yeah. But this is a weak point of AI Pre, um, prediction and and understanding what's coming down the pike. This is hard to do. And I think in the ideal world, it has real resonance with Chinese history. We talk about it kind of in our in our writing as an updated an updated version of Mao's mass line. Um, but you can see the resonance, right? It's yeah, about absolutely. staying in touch with society and understanding what's coming and get or we sometimes it could also fall into the rubric of responsive authoritarianism. So I'd say that's the the most tantalizing and yet most elusive aspect of how the Chinese state would like AI to play out in this space.
0: And that, that's really what I wanted to ask both of you last is, you know, what are, in just sort of broadly speaking, uh, what would you say are the optimistic scenarios for the impact of this database on Chinese law on Chinese politics, uh, even more more broadly on society. Um, and you know, you just you just flicked at one. Maybe Ben, do you what? What are your what? What do you think is the best case scenario for how this gets used?
2: So, you know, we're still at early stages of this, and I think it remains to be seen. You know, a few years down the road, how the Supreme Court continues, or if the Supreme Court continues this practice. Uh, you know, on the one hand, it's it's opening up uh a lot of opportunities to deepen our understanding of how of how law is actually practiced in China, you know, both scholars outside of China and scholars within China. And that's a good thing, right? Because it lets us better understand problems in the system and actually areas where the system may be making some progress. So, you know, it's 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 not surprising that the scholar here says the best case scenario is it continues to be useful to scholarly study. Um, But I think also there's a hope that it'll make the system more accessible to ordinary people. I mean, we haven't really talked about this in our conversation so far, but part of what's driving smart courts in China is this idea that through the embrace of technology, the courts can make it easier for ordinary people to use and navigate the legal system, right? Not just finding out information about their their own individual case, but finding out more about how to file a case, how long it's gonna take, whether actually they're likely to win or lose, they can make the system more accessible. So I guess the best case scenario for me is some combination of both of those. It's, it's you know, lets us uh, scholars in China and the U.S. and elsewhere in the world better understand what's going on. But it also makes it easier for ordinary Chinese people to navigate the system.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a point also to be made about U.S.-China relations, hmm. that at this moment um, of obvious tension in the bilateral relationship and where the dominant conversation is about decoupling One of my concerns, which makes sense as a scholar, is that we know less and less about China, just we have less and less substantive knowledge as fieldwork becomes more and more difficult or any kind of interviewing. Amen. So here's a tremendous source of information. That's the optimistic scenario that almost no matter what topic you're interested in, there will be legal cases that relate to it where you can go in and get a little window into the lives of ordinary people and how they're interacting with the state.
0: Well, Rachel Ben, that, thank you so much. This has just been absolutely fantastic. What a delight to talk to you both about this work. Uh, I would love to have you both back on soon, uh, as especially as more research based on this starts you know, coming in. Uh, let's move on now to recommendations. But first, let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. I think that uh, the work that Jeremy Lucas, Anthony, Jiayun do uh, is is fantastic. It's just really great. Uh, I read it every day. Just, just, it's really where I know most of what I think I know now about what's happening in China. So check it out. Uh, and now on to recommendations. I, I, uh, so, Rachel, what do you have for this week?
1: Well, it's uh, coming up on the holidays, which means I am revising my syllabus for next semester. All right. As one does. Um, I'm teaching Law and Chinese Society, which I teach as an undergraduate course, and teaching it here at Berkeley in particular. Um, the, it is mostly Asian and Asian-American students, and it becomes a class on Asian and Asian-American identity in its hmm. best incarnation. But I've been thinking about how to integrate more Chinese voices into the syllabus, it has to be in translation because I'm teaching at Berkeley. But to that end, um, I've enjoyed two things. One is there's this new book out called Voices from the Chinese Century, oh wow, um, which is a collection of essays written by Chinese intellectuals um, in translation. They're really, really interesting and fabulous. So for anyone who's revising a syllabus, and I recommend that. Uh, the one deficit of the collection is there's almost nothing written by Chinese women. Oh no, which they acknowledge the the translators and say as a reflection of the reality of Chinese academia so right. i'm pairing it with um, Carolyn Kahn's memoir Oh, good. um under what's it called under red skies Is, did i get yeah. that right yeah, yeah it's it's really nice it's a beautiful book and I'm, um and also with some of the podcasts the Woman podcasts yeah. that uh, from your from your from new your si- voices, yeah. new voices from yeah. your sister channel so yeah. i recommend that whole collection of stuff
0: Excellent. Um, I'm I'm really glad to see there's so much more attention now being paid to actually sort of establishment intellectuals, sort of reading the Chinese Dream that website um, has all yeah. the translations from it. Uh, this is I've always complained about is one of the deficits that everyone you you see the Chinese intellectuals that you tend to read in English translation, are, you know, in the New York Times. It's, it's going to be you know. Um, Yu Hua, and it's, it's you know, Murong uh, and people who are, you know, pretty stridently dissident. And that, that often contributes to the disconnect. We don't understand what the ordinary intellectuals are thinking. So I look forward to plunging into that book. Uh, yeah, great, great
2: recommendation. What about you, Ben? What do you have for us? So I'm going in a completely different direction in terms of my recommendation. Uh, I'm going to recommend an artist, uh, Stuart Robertson, who's a London based painter who works in watercolors. Uh, and his art shows at the Piers Feedham Gallery in Fulham. His, uh, prior work drew a lot on time he spent in India and now does a lot of work in architecture. Um, and this is totally not influenced by the fact that I am sitting right now in his studio (laughs) looking looking at his work as I record this podcast. So, uh, Shout out to Stuart Robertson. Now you can Google him or look at the gallery online. I will say, is that S-T-U-A-R-T, Stuart? Uh, that's right.
0: Okay. I am going to recommend a show that my daughter likes. Uh, it's a Chinese show. It's called Fei Huitan. I don't know if you've seen that before. Uh, it's a Hubei Wei Shishio, Uh and it, it, it features really fluent Chinese speakers from countries all around the world, Europeans, people from down under, Americans, uh, Japanese and Koreans. Uh, it's you know it's in that that category, but it was based on a Korean show, uh, as so many of the popular sort of entertainments are these days in China, um, because it was a format borrowed that way, and because it's really aimed at kind of teenage girls, and the boys are always cute. It's always boys. I mean, it, it, these these cute boys who speak really fluent Mandarin. Um, the Chinese level is kind of ridiculously high. They uh, it, it's a, yes it's it's weird that. You can still sort of become famous just for speaking that language fluently. Um, we haven't moved that far away from the Dashan days, uh, but the fact that their conversations have to steer, you know, pretty clear of most political topics—I mean, it can get pretty irksome. But just as a phenomenon, as a kind of a curious artifact of the age of of China's herky-jerky rise, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. You can see it on YouTube, and uh, we'll definitely link to it on the show notes to this podcast. So thanks again, you guys. That's, that's what Thank just, you. That was yeah. fun. Yeah, thanks, absolutely. Thanks for having us. So um, are your papers out now to be publicly downloaded anywhere, or is this something that...
1: Yeah, we can link to them.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to, to put links to, to the, those, those papers because they're very, very much worth reading, again, as sort of the people surveying the gold mine before the, the diggers come, come. This is going to be the new gold rush here. Uh, ben, great to talk to you. Good to talk to you as well. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year to you both. Yeah, Happy
2: Thanks
1: New Year. Thanks very much.
0: Happy New Year to
2: everyone.
0: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kajie Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News and make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our expanding network. We've got some big announcements coming up. And probably one of them has dropped already by the time you've heard this show. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.